Elizabeth. Well, over the last two weeks, we've been talking about the resurrection. And I want to begin just by sharing something that happened to me this morning as I got into my car. Um, I've got this cell phone with a unique device on it that when I start my car, it tells me where I'm going. And I didn't realize this in, until I started getting in my car after driving back and forth to Maranatha and I got my, my phone fixed and this new device that I have started saying that my destination from my home is now Maranatha High School. It tells me what the traffic is like and how long it estimates to get there. And so this is something that I, that I use when I get in my car in Maranatha. It tells me how long I have to get home. Is it go, go 45 minutes to get to school and three hours to get home. But when I got in my car this morning, it gave me the destination of this place. It knew it. My phone knew it was Sunday and it was time to come to church. <laughs> That's kind of cool. Yes. Yeah. Amen. So, so, so here I am for the third week and my phone is reminding me to, to come here. But for, for the last three weeks, the, the first week we took a look at it, it five reasons to believe that the resurrection is a historical account. We looked at the transformational lives of the disciples, and many of those disciples transformed their lives very quickly from the time of the crucifixion to the time of the resurrection within three days. Number two, we looked at the reliability of the Bible and some good reasons why the Bible is a historically reliable document. And in all four Gospels, it mentions and records the death, burial, and crucifixion of Jesus. So based on the Bible, there's good reasons to believe that it's historically accurate. Uh, number three, we looked at the presence and practice of the church. There really is no explanation for how the Christian movement as a whole got started, apart from the experiences that the early disciples had with the resurrected Jesus. We also looked at the empty tomb, that uh, to this day, as far as we know, the body of Christ has not been discovered in any tomb anywhere because it's been fully resurrected. And an empty tomb is certainly what you would expect if the resurrection took place. But fifthly, I mentioned that I don't believe there's any good alternatives to the resurrection account. And last week, we spent a good chunk of time looking at a number of them. And, and today, I want to begin with, with number nine. But number nine, I want to begin by telling this joke that I heard at Easter time where a pastor begins his Easter message and the congregation is anxiously waiting and they're, it's packed because people tend to come on Easter when sometimes they don't come on every Sunday. And He stands up in front of the congregation and he says, I have bad news. Service is canceled today. And everybody starts freaking out. Why would Easter service be canceled? And he says, because they found the body. Now, some people might think that's funny. Other people might think that's an abomination. How dare you tell that joke in church? But there is some sense of reality to that joke. If they had discovered or ever discovered the body of Christ, then we wouldn't have a reason to celebrate Easter or to even gather and meet. An empty tomb shows that the body has never been discovered. But I had a friend of mine that, I call him a friend, I use that term loosely, but uh, when I would preach on Sundays, he would be in the back and he'd be taking his notes and he would come up and criticize something about every message that I had. I mean, no, it didn't matter what it was. Maybe I pronounced the scholar's name wrong or something come out. It, that would have been better if you would have read from the Tanakh, which is the Jewish translation of the Old Testament. I mean, he had some kind of criticism for, for something every single Sunday. And one Sunday he came and presented to me this dilemma from the Discovery Channel that they had discovered the body of Jesus in a tomb. And I thought to myself, if that's really true, then that would be faith-shattering for a lot of Christians, for a lot of people. So I felt like I had the responsibility to look into this Discovery Channel and see what the episode had to say about whether it had really found the lost tomb and the, it, with, with the bones inside of, of Jesus. That's what they had claimed. And so I, I looked at this, and I, I looked at the, the names and, 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 and all of the information that was in there, and I found some interesting insights on this. Number one, I found that this tomb is called the Talpiot tomb, where it claims to find the, the lost family of Jesus. And it was originally discovered in 1980. 
But the Discovery Channel didn't air an episode until 2000 and what? 2007. So I asked, if this really was the family tomb of Jesus Christ, why would it take so long for it to reach popularity and be presented to the public? Wouldn't this be something that would have been out there in 1980 as the, the find of the ages, right? But I also discovered why it wasn't until 2007 that they decided to present this information is because that was around about the time that the movie with Tom Hanks, The Da Vinci Code, had come out. And you know the Da Vinci Code story of, of Jesus being married to Mary Magdalene and they had a baby and then that baby went to France and developed the whole line of the Merovingian kings and somehow there's a, a lost royalty uh, to the personage of, of Jesus Christ. And so I found that it was interesting how the stories kind of lined up and I did some research to look into this, not so much that it would be faith shattering for me, I didn't really believe that this was the the body of, of Christ in, in a tomb somewhere. But I did find that some of my students were being challenged with this, younger people. And it was on the Discovery Channel, and they watch these shows, and it's on the Internet, and they're attentive more to the Internet than probably any other place. And, and so also when I had gone and seen The Da Vinci Code, I felt a responsibility to go see it to my students because when that movie had come out, questions were abounding everywhere. So I thought I needed to see this on the Friday that it came out so I was aware of what it said, aware of all the information, and I could go back on Monday and share with the students that I had seen the movie and at least be able to have some dialogue about it. But while I was in line to see the Da Vinci Code movie, an alumni that had been in my class came up to me and said, how you doing, Mr. Masiska? It's been a few years. And he was going to go see the Da Vinci Code. We were going to go see it together by accident. We just happened to show up at the movie at the same time. And he said, Mr. Masiska, is there any truth to this? Did Jesus really marry, Ma marry Mary Magdalene and have this whole story come about? And thinking to myself, how did you go through my class in four years in Maranatha and, and have the discussion and, and be attentive to all these things and then have these questions? But then I realized that, that people do. Later on in life, there may be some challenges or struggles or maybe they forget some things or maybe something new pops out that gets their attention and he was really struggling and I just told him, I said, look, there's no truth to this whatsoever. This is a fable, a story that's just a book that was made, fiction, and some people are claiming that it has some kind of connection historically. But I said, don't worry, and I gave him some reasons why. But when this episode came out, it was playing off of that uh, foundation of the Da Vinci Code, and it was presenting this lost tomb as the tomb of Jesus Christ. And there were some interesting names in there. Yeshua, Jesus, which Yeshua would be Jesus. Uh, it said, Jesus, son of Joseph. So that's interesting. It had the name Joseph in there. It had the name Judas, Matthias, and an odd name, Mariamne Amara which we don't really know. But the way that this episode put it all together, they said that Joseph was Jesus' father, Judas was Jesus' son, Mariamne Amara was Jesus' wife, Mary Magdalene, and they really couldn't account for this Matthias, who would be Matthew. Why would Matthew be in the family tomb of Jesus? And so it was an interesting connection of how they tried to make this whole thing work but unless they're able to connect all of these names on these ossuaries, these, these uh, stone caskets with bones inside, with the relationships that they claim in the episode, then the whole thing would fall apart. And then that's where it does fall apart, is because there's no way of knowing how these relationships line up. I mean, one even scholar mentioned that Mariamna could be one person, Mara could be another, and you could have bones of two different people in one casket. But we don't really know. Uh, what these names are and, and who they are connected, but it, it seems from the scholarship that was presented from 1980 that the least likely explanation is that this is the lost tomb of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. And I even went to my professor at, uh, at, at Biola, uh, Dr. Clint Arnold, who's an expert in New Testament studies, and I interviewed him and, and had some questions because I said, I need to get this information back to my students and we need this corrected pretty quickly. And, and his response was uh, that it doesn't make sense that they would uh, title Jesus' tomb 
uh, or, or casket as Jesus, son of Joseph, when that would have been one of the least likely titles that he had in his life? Why wouldn't it be titled Jesus of Nazareth or Jesus, son of God or some other title that Jesus went by? And that was interesting. Uh, but then he presented to me a historian by the name of Paul Meyer who did some research on this and said that this is just a bunch of naked hype, sensationalism, and a major media fraud. And when you, when you look at it and you see the work that was done in 1980, there is no reason to think that the picture of uh, 2007 that the Discovery Channel presents has any historical accuracy whatsoever. In fact, what we find is the History Channel, Discovery Channel, uh, they air these episodes that are highly biased against religious faith and they pass them off as historical accuracy. And when you really do a deeper study on some of these episodes, you realize that it really is a media fraud meant to be out there for, uh, for, for publicity, to get people to watch their channels and get people to watch their shows. And so there's really no reason to think that to date they have ever discovered the, uh, the, the body of Jesus. And I don't believe they ever will because I think with all of the evidence that I presented in my first message, that there are really good reasons to believe that the resurrection is a historical document. I was also able to do a little bit of research on the uh, archaeologist who did the work in 1980 on this tomb, and he says that this episode of, uh, of, of, from 2007 is just a bunch of hogwash. It has no validity whatsoever. He says the least likely presentation, but he understands why somebody would present it this way to get somebody to read their books, or to get somebody to watch their shows. It's also interesting if you look at the, uh, the names of, of the, the guys that are in, in charge of this episode, James Cameron and Simka Jakobovich. And James Cameron should be a name that sounds familiar because he's a major movie director, Avatar and some of those uh, movies, and Titanic, sure. So we recognize his name from being a movie director and certainly he has a hidden agenda in, in presenting this. As a, as a publication on uh, the historical History Channel and, and Discovery Channel. Uh, another argument that I came upon was when uh, I was studying at Biola in the 1990s, and I took my first apologetics class in 1994 as a sophomore, and this was a time when there was a, a movement in the 1990s of a group of 150 liberal scholars that got together and, and they, they read the New Testament, they were New Testament scholars, or they claimed to be, and they took different colored beads and they would place them on the scriptures that they felt Jesus actually did do these things and they would get one color. Jesus most likely did, but we don't know for sure, they'd get another color. And then maybe 50-50, we'll put this color bead on these verses. And then the highly unlikely, we'll put another bead, and then there was another color bead that for sure, 100%, Jesus could not have done these things. And you say, well, how would they know? And it really comes down to their worldview. If you come from a worldview that, that there would be no miracles, then obviously the miracle passages would all get the for sure he did not. If you come from a worldview that certainly he was just a human being that existed, then if he's having a conversation that doesn't have anything to do with religion with somebody, then we might accept something like that, or the crucifixion we might accept, or situations like that. And it was interesting to me to, to read a little bit of what the Jesus Seminar was all about. But in January of 1994, I came across a Time Magazine article entitled Jesus Christ Plain and Simple by one of the leaders of this Jesus Seminar, John Dominic Crossan. And as I read through the article, he gave reasons why the Jesus Seminar did not believe in the death, burial, and resurrection. Certainly not the burial and the resurrection account. They, 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 they withdraw draw the belief in the resurrection because it's a miracle. And he even goes so far as to say that Jesus was never actually given the burial by Joseph of Arimathea. And this was interesting because in this article there was an interview of, of John, John Mike Croson. And, and the question was, why are you going against years and years and years of scholarship and all the New Testament Gospels say that Jesus was dead and buried by Joseph of Arimathea and, and, and resurrected from the dead? Why are you going against the earliest accounts and what the most popular arguments are from the scholars? And his response in the article was, it's my hunch. 
what he said. So if you believe that Jesus was hanging on the cross and taken off and thrown out somewhere and eaten by wild dogs and that's why his body was disappeared, then you're going really off of a scholar's hunch. Obviously, he has bias, but off of his hunch versus years and years of scholarship. My professor at Biola, Dr. William Lane Craig, gives eight reasons why he believes that the uh, traditional burial account of Jesus by Joseph of Arimathea is actually historical. And, and number one is that the burial story was part of an oral tradition predating the Gospels. Because you'll remember that 1 Corinthians 15, it talks about Paul receiving that Jesus was crucified, buried, and resurrected. And his claim to burial is not something that he finds in the Gospels because 1 Corinthians would have predated the Gospels, and he's talking about an oral tradition that was passed down to him. So the burial account, first and foremost, found, finds itself very, very early as part of an oral tradition. Number two, the traditional burial account is simplistic. It, it doesn't lack any afterthought of something that would have been two, four, five hundred years later, and we're going to build this big story. It, it, it just lacks much simplicity of a man who followed Jesus and loved him, although he was part of a group of people that were against him that would care enough to place his body in his own tomb. Uh, Joseph of Arimathea was a member of the Sanhedrin. Uh, it doesn't seem that that would be a Christian invention. Why would you invent a group of people that opposed Jesus during his life and ministry and choose one of those guys to be empathetic towards Jesus to be willing to take his body and, and bury it in the tomb. It seems like if you were going to make up a story, wouldn't you make one of his prized disciples the hero to care enough about his body and take it off the tomb? And we could have been, it could have been any of them. But no, it's interesting that it was Joseph of Arimathea. It doesn't seem to be a story that would be made up. And the fact that Joseph laid Jesus' body in his own tomb and not another tomb would have made this a, a place that everybody would have known about. Uh, my professor, J.P. Moreland, mentions that Joseph of Arimathea would have been known among the community like a, a U.S. senator. And the place that a, a burial would have been highly known among the people because Jesus was so important and Joseph of Arimathea in the community was so important. You've got two very important people surrounding this story. There's no accident as to where it would have been born or where he would have been buried. Um, Jesus was buried late on Friday and the day of preparation, as the Bible says, just before nightfall because of the impending Sabbath. And remember that because Jesus was a Jewish rabbi, they didn't want to leave the body on the cross during the Sabbath time. This was also a huge celebration of Passover, so it was not just the Sabbath, it was also Passover Sabbath, which is like a huge holiday in the Jewish religion. They cared enough to take Jesus' body off of the cross in time to have him buried before the sun set on Friday, which would have instituted the beginning of the Sabbath day. The observation of the burial by women, the fact that there are so many women at the crucifixion and at the burial, also gives credibility to the historical accounts. Because in the first century, women didn't have any testimony or validity whatsoever. In fact, there are, are documents in historical first century that say whatever a woman tells you, don't believe it. I mean, now that's not our society, and some of you are like, that's offensive. But that's because it's offensive to our society. But, but you go back to their society in the first century, and they didn't value what a woman has to say. So the fact that it was the woman's testimony and the women were present, and women were so active in, in Jesus' ministry, I think demonstrates what Paul says also when he says that there is no Jew or Greek or male or female. And it's all about equality at the foot of the cross. And I strongly believe that the foot of the cross is of level ground, level playing field. It doesn't matter uh, what your gender is or what your nationality is or what your rank is, but presidents and paupers are going to have to come to terms with who Jesus was at the foot of the cross. And, and ultimately, we recognize that the graves of Jewish men were also heavily preserved, but Jesus all the much more. Because he was a Jewish rabbi, caused some controversy, this, this grave would have been protected and preserved and remembered. And there is no other burial account. There, there's no other story. You've got John Dominic Croissant's hunch, or you've got the years and years and years of oral tradition, as well as what's documented in epistles and gospels. And I would go with the reliability every single time. 
Now, number, number 11 is found a lot on the internet and that becomes popular among some of the students that are searching for reasons not to believe when they discover arguments that Jesus had a twin. <laughs> and, and again, this is not widely held because even just from some of your responses, you can see the natural absurdity to the view of the twin theory. Okay? But it's interesting to discover where some of this comes from. A lot of it is found in the Syriac texts dated 2nd and 3rd century. So these are two to 300 years after Jesus, and they don't really have any credibility to the historical Jesus. But also on the internet, you find a bunch of appeals to twin theory in a bunch of different forms. Because we have to ask the question, if Jesus did have a twin, then where, what's that? Yeah, sure, where, where are the bones? You're right. Well, where, where is this? Because you still have an empty tomb. And if you have a twin theory, you don't have an empty tomb. So the, the twin theory is going to have to come to terms with my evidence number four, and that is that we have an empty tomb and always did from the very beginning. We don't have bones anywhere. We don't have a, a dead body anywhere. But it's, it's interesting to consider some of these versions. Um, if, if Jesus, one version is Jesus never even died on the cross. It was his twin. And people thought, and then it was actually really Jesus who was appearing to people, but his twin had died. Or is it the other way? Jesus actually died, but then his twin starts going around and, and, and talking to people and deceiving them. Uh, but then the question is, who was the twin? And I've seen some interesting thoughts on this. Uh, some have suggested that Simon of Cyrene was the twin, but that doesn't make sense. The only reason Simon of Cyrene gets put in there is because he's the one who carried the cross for Jesus, right? Or Ju Judas Iscariot was one of them. I thought that's really absurd because Judas goes and hangs himself out of great guilt, I believe, for uh, rejecting and denying and turning Jesus into the leaders for uh, 30 pieces of silver. I mean, he got, he got ripped off. But uh, there, there really is no full explanation. Some have even argued that Thomas, doubting Thomas, who is the one who doesn't believe when he sees Jesus, but starts believing when he experiences Jesus' wounds, that he's the twin somehow. Because Thomas Didymus, and it does, the Bible does say Thomas Didymus, Didymus means twin. Certainly doesn't mean twin of Jesus, but we don't know if Didymus means twin. Did Thomas have a twin? Maybe, but it doesn't seem that it was Jesus. But what's interesting in the twin theories is that if there is any credibility at all, the credibility of the writings comes two to 300 years after Jesus, which is way too late for historical credibility. And also, you can put anything on the internet, right? And that's where the problem lies. But as you can put anything on the internet, sadly, anyone can discover anything on the internet. And that's what I'm really wrestling with, with a lot of my students and, and young people, is that they have the internet, they can fact check something right there in the middle of the classroom. And if they want to find ulterior motives and ulterior views to anything, it's right there on the internet for them on their iPads or on their cell phones to discover. And a lot of this stuff is dangerous if you're not willing to really think it through. But once we pause and do a little bit of look and think it through a little bit to its logical conclusion, we realize that these alternatives are rather absurd. There's another alternative, number 12, Yes, it, it is, correct. Yeah, like the swoon theory that, that Jesus wasn't actually dead because it wasn't him who died on the cross. And with the Islam view, is there is this idea that there was a deception taking place, that it appeared that Jesus was crucified, but he wasn't really. Correct, yes. And, and that's one of the things that I'd want to look at. If there is plagiarism taking place, the plagiarism is not on behalf of the Christians, plagiarizing from other religions, it seems to be the other way around. And that's what I find fascinating because on this next one, number 12, the story of Jesus being taken from pagan mythology. That's, that's a view that's out there. Now, as I shared at the very beginning that I had a friend of mine that criticized everything, I, I shared, this was a few years ago, there was a, a movie by Bill Maher that came out. 
advocating for this theory that's up on the board next, that, uh, that Jesus, the story of Jesus came from pagan mythology. And the name of the movie was Religious. And it's kind of bringing the, the views together that religion is ridiculous. Religious. And, and he, he makes the case throughout his movie that, uh, and Bill Maher is a comedian and an atheist, very anti-Christian, uh, that these ideas of Jesus, the virgin birth, and the resurrection are all plagiarized from other religions. And I remember when I first came across this, and I, I watched the movie, and I documented some things, and I wanted to go to church and, and respond to the movie because people were talking a lot about it. I felt like, as a pastor, I needed to respond. And, and when I did, I mispronounced the name of the movie. you believe that? I guess the correct pronunciation is religious because it's religion, as my friend corrected me. But I kept calling it religious. And he said, that's a not correct pronunciation. It's incorrect pronouncing it that way. And I responded, I said, well, I pronounce it religious because it's ridiculous. <laughs> and, I, and I think it is rather ridiculous to say that the, the stories of Jesus were plagiarized from other religions. But... I did a little bit of digging. Bill Maher was not the one to create this idea. Uh, and I don't know if the authors of this book actually created it either, but there's a book called The Jesus Mysteries. Uh, and in this, the authors argue that, the, well, they ask this question. Why should we consider the stories of Osiris, Dionysus, Adonis, Attis, Mithras, and other pagan mystery saviors as fables yet come across essentially the same story told in a Jesus or Jewish context and believe it is the biography of a carpenter from Bethlehem. And that's, that's the question. Why, if all of these other pagan stories, do we just dismiss and say that's false? Do we come upon a Jesus who dies and rises from the dead and not do the same thing? Now, that's the question. And then they're going to make the case that we really shouldn't think that Jesus is special. He is just like all the other gods and the pagan stories actually were used by early Christians to create this story and start the Christian movement. It's basically what the premise of, of this book is about. Uh, Michael Lycona, though, who is a Christian apologist, argues in his book, The Case for the Resurrection of Jesus, that you cannot dismiss the resurrection of Jesus unless you can refute its solid core of supporting evidence. And I've presented really what I think are five supporting cores of evidence, four of them at least, are positive, and that is the transformation of the disciples, the reliability of the Bible, the presence and practice of the church, and the empty tomb. And then if we add in there that there are no good alternatives, then every alternative that we present has to be filtered through those four solid pieces of evidence. And nothing that we've looked at so far, nor anything that I've really seen, has successfully refuted these four pieces of evidence. And so I agree with Michael Lycona. If you're going to say that something else happened, you also not just have to present your, your new view, but you have to argue against all four of the positive reasons why we affirm the historicity of the, uh, of, of, of the resurrection account. But then I did a little bit of digging. I did this just for my own fun. I thought it would be interesting to see what similarities, if there are any, between these gods of paganism and the story of Jesus Christ. And the first one that I came across was Osiris. And I found that Osiris was murdered by his brother. He was buried in the Nile. He was recovered by Isis. Isis has a whole other meaning now. He was recovered by Isis and cut up into 14 pieces and scattered across the earth. And later, Isis gathered 13 pieces and baptized them in the Nile. It's kind of the synopsis of what happens to Osiris. And then we ask the question, is this really that similar to what happens to Jesus? And we see absolutely not. Yes. Uh, yes, it's an individual God. Yes. What's that? Goddess, yeah. Yeah, so Isis comes along and, and fixes this whole thing, puts it all together, but here lies the problem. From what we see, there were 14 pieces scattered and only 13 pieces put back together and put into the Nile. Okay. So I thought it was interesting that Gary Habernes and Michael Lycona, this, uh, both of them are Christian apologists, respond and say, it is questionable whether Osiris was brought back to life or seen by others as Jesus was. 
Osiris was given the status as a god, lowercase g, of the gloomy underworld. So the picture we get of Osiris is that of a guy who does not have all of his parts and maintains a shadowy existence of a god of the mummies. Osiris's return was not a resurrection, but a zombification, which sounds very good in a world where we're turning on the TV and we see all these zombie shows, right? And, and that kind of seems to be the picture. So Osiris' view is more like a zombie and not a full resurrection like Jesus Christ. And then you've got Sybil and Attis, a pagan story used to explain the seasons. And this is what I found more than anything in paganism. Any stories of dying and rising gods in paganism, this was done way back, seems to be an explanation for the dying and risings of seasons. So that if a god or goddess was in charge of a season, like the harvest, when the harvest is over and winter comes, then that god dies. And then when the harvest comes back, then that god resurrects or comes back, and it does every single year. So you would have in paganism a view of multiple gods dying multiple times, and multiple gods dying multiple times and resurrecting multiple times. And, and this is what is just used by the people of those cultures to explain the comings and goings of the seasons and the crops and, and that whole thing. Uh, but the concept of the resurrection in these thoughts and ideas don't even appear until the writings of the second century. So that if there is any plagiarism on behalf of paganism versus Christianity, it seems that it was the pagans who plagiarized from the Christians and the story of Jesus rather than the other way around. In the story of Adonis Tammuz, only four surviving texts mention this person, and they are dated 4th century A.D. So again, if there's any connection between the story of Adonis to Moose and Jesus in any way, that connection would have clearly, based on the dates that we have of documents, been plagiarized on behalf of the pagans, not on behalf of the Christians. It seems that the pagans are using more of the Bible and the Jesus story to promote their gods rather than the accusation being that Christians are using paganism to support Christianity. But then this next one, Mithras. Mithras poses a problem for a lot of people because Mithras seems to have more details attached to him as far as a, a pagan god than any of the others. Some of them seem to be very generalizations of a god going and coming back and, and they're very general. But with Mithras... There's some documentation as to what seems to be a little bit more uh, detailed connecting to Jesus. And so it's interesting. On tectonics.org, there is an article uh, entitled, Did Mithraic Mysteries Influence Christianity? And it lists seven similarities and topics connected to Jesus that draw similarities between this god Mithras and the person of Jesus. And like Jesus, they're going to argue that Mithras had a virgin birth, was born on December 25th, was a traveling teacher, had 12 disciples, sacrificed for world peace, instituted a Lord's Supper, and died and rose again within three days later. So there seems to be seven similarities between this false god Mithras and our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. But the question is, where did these ideas come from? looking at the dates, and is there really the similarities that we would claim we would expect? What we do find about Mithras is that he was a Persian god attested to in 14 BC. But Mithraism as a religion that connected some of these ideas didn't really arise until AD 90. That's interesting. So Mithraism as a religion is starting to grow far after Jesus. And that would be something to recognize. The earth, earliest Mithra temples are in Rome, 2nd century A.D., and the earliest texts are around 140 A.D. So again, you've got late texts and late temples showing that the worship of Mithras as a god with any connection to Jesus whatsoever comes well after Jesus. So if there is any plagiarism, it's coming on behalf of the Mithrists stealing from Jesus. Christianity rather than the other way around. And late Bible scholar Ronald Nash argues that the flowering of Mithraism occurred after the close of the New Testament canon, too late for it to have influence 
on the development of first century Christianity. And I would agree with that. And what I'm finding is that it seems all the way across the board that these religions are stealing from Christianity rather than the other way around as some of them are claiming. We also find that these similarities that are so-called similarities might not be so similar. I mean, Mithras was claimed to be born of a virgin, but if you look into it, according to the text, he came out of a rock. Now, my guess is the rock was probably a virgin, but he's coming out of a rock rather than a woman. We recognize December 25th was most likely not actually the day that Jesus was born. And I'm willing to discuss this topic much later another time, but the reality is that it seems that the Christians have established December 25th as a rival holiday to uh, some of what was happening in the Sol Invictus God and false gods of the Romans, and they place uh, celebration of Christianity on December 25th. And my response to this simply is that it's fascinating to me that long after we've forgotten the names of the Romans, their gods, we still remember on December 25th what? the birth of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And over the test of 2,000 years, I couldn't name maybe 10 gods of the Romans uh, for you, but I certainly can remember that Christmas is Christ Mass and a day to celebrate uh, the birth of my Savior that happened over 2,000 years ago. Mithras was a pagan god, not a teacher. Jesus actually walked around. He was a Jewish rabbi. He was a teacher. Mithras was a, a pagan mythological god. Um, no texts say that Mithras had 12 disciples, so these assertions that are on websites are just blind assertions without any documentation whatsoever. And uh, I've written a book called Constructing a Christian Worldview, where I actually go through a, several different types of uh, uh, Christian apologetical issues that we use my, my textbook in the classroom for our uh, apologetics classes and our philosophy classes. And... Basically, what I've gone through over this last three weeks is my chapter on resurrection. Just one chapter. It took three weeks to get through, but there's so much information in there, and we're dissecting so much information that, that I, I, I have about 20 pages of footnotes of all of the places that I documented uh, the, the, the evidence that I've looked at and the arguments that I presented, that I find it fascinating that people can go online, make a statement, and have it not be backed by anything, and yet people read these documents and they believe them as fact, when in reality they're just blanket statements without any, any references whatsoever. We also would agree as Christians that Jesus was not sacrificed for world peace. He was sacrificed for peace with God, which is radically different than world peace as the Mithras claim. Uh, Mithras did not sacrifice himself, but rather he killed a bull. And the killing of a bull is not dying himself. So even that seems a little bit off to the story that we have from Mithraism. Edwin Yamauchi, who studied this much more than I have, he's a retired history, uh, history professor and apologist from Miami University. Uh, he says that there is no evidence to suggest that Mithras died. Where there is no death, there can be no resurrection. He's 81 years old now. He's retired, and he's studied this, like I said, in much more detail, written many more books than I have on this. And his response as connecting paganism, specifically Mithras, to Jesus Christ and the resurrection, he says that there's, there's no validity to it at all. Oxford scholar E.J. Arnold, who writes a lot about documentation from the 1st and 2nd century A.D., as well as studying the connections between Mithraism and Christianity, uh, writes from the Christian perspective that the, further, the fervor with which historians used to detect wholesale Christian borrowings from Mithric or Mysteries has now died down. And that was back in 1974. So I, I think it's interesting that in 1974 he writes that these connections have now died down. And then I ask the question, well, why have these stories, sorry for the pun, but why have these stories resurrected again? It, and I think it's because of the Internet. The, the internet ha gives us a platform to resurrect dead arguments and present them to new ears and new eyes and young minds and pass them on as facts, and it causes a whole bunch of problems. So we need to renew the discussion again and bring these up. I also did uh, an interview with one of my professors from Biola. His name is Dr. William Lane Craig. As to how this whole thing got started, 
I mean, why would anybody think that Christianity started from paganism? And he had an interesting thought. Now, he has a lot to say on this, more than I have time for, but he did bring an interesting connection to this. He said that for a long time that German scholarship had led the way in New, Christi in New Testament Christianity, for a long time. And he said that during that time period, German scholarship was also very anti-Semitic. So you have a problem. You've got the leaders of the world in New Testament history and New Testament scholarship writing from an anti-Semitic perspective and Jesus was a Jewish rabbi. So we wonder if some of these ideas come from a bias from German scholarship trying to demolish the credibility of Jesus as a Jewish person and then in its place comes all of these ideas that the Christians plagiarized from paganism. It could very well be that. I've never really thought of that as an explanation for the origin, but now that I think about it, it really does kind of make sense as to why a group of scholars would want to bring this out. But as William Lane Craig brings out that recently there has been a renewed view on apologetics, viewing Jesus as a first century Jewish rabbi, and from the lens of Judaism, you see a beautiful picture of our Lord and Savior and the Old Testament Messiah being presented there. And it, it's an amazing story when we see it from the historical lens of Judaism. So it's interesting to see why a group of people may have wanted to try to erase the Judaism of Jesus because of anti-Semitism. But in our society today, it seems that the scholarship is correcting that and bringing us back to the historical Jewish Jesus. Now, to wrap this up, there are some brave souls out there, although maybe a handful of them out there, who are willing to progress an argument that all of this is for naught because Jesus Christ never actually existed at all. Now, I would say that that's a very small group of people because when I consider atheism and I look at statistics, atheism composes about 1% to 3% of our world population. And, and I'm using 3% as conservative because I realize in atheism you've got a bubble of people from hardcore atheists that say, I know for sure God does not exist. I don't know how they can know that, but that's hardcore atheism on one hand. On the other hand, you've got people that say, I just, and they were agnostic, but they would put themselves in the role of atheism. They're a little bit more open to the possibility that God might exist, but they still identify as atheists because they don't fully have the proof or something along those lines. So the point is, is that there may be 1% to 3% of the world population being atheists. And I'm going to argue that within that percentage of people, there's even a small less percent that would say that Jesus never existed, which I'm saying that the atheists themselves would at least agree that Jesus was a Jewish rabbi who was a teacher. They might not go as far as to say that Jesus died and was buried and resurrected. Resurrection would in, entail a miracle. They're not willing to go there, but at least they would be willing to say that Jesus Christ was a teacher from the first century. Very, very few people would say that Jesus never existed. But in responding to this, I have really two things that I want to bring up. And the first one that I want to bring up is a book from a scholar that I mentioned is one of my favorite, I want to call him anti-Christian, but he certainly is writing from a secular perspective. And I've mentioned him in my first sermon, Bart Ehrman, and I mentioned some of his controversial titles, Lost Christianities, and a bunch of different arguments that he raised and brought up challenging the traditional belief in Jesus. But he writes a book called Did Jesus Exist that angered much of his core audience because a lot of his audience liked the fact that he was challenging traditional Christianity. But in this view, while he doesn't support traditional Christianity, he makes a pretty thick case that at least there's strong evidence to believe that Jesus Christ existed. And what I find fascinating is for those who are going to say that Jesus Christ did not exist, should come to terms with some of the thoughts in this book from somebody who's clearly not a Christian, making the case that Jesus was a first century teacher at least. Second, I would bring up that there are good reasons outside of the Bible to believe that Jesus at least existed. And this Edwin Yamauchi that I brought up earlier, who's a retired history and apologist uh, teacher, 
writes a, 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 an article entitled, Jesus Outside the New Testament, What Evidence Do We Have? Now, when I'm talking to students, they're surprised sometimes to realize that there's more arguments even outside of just the Bible. It's not just the Bible. So if you're biased against the Bible, you can use at least six pieces of evidence outside of the Bible to demonstrate that Jesus Christ at least existed. And this is what we have. We have more than just his existence. But let's take a look and see what we have outside of the Bible and see how it actually corresponds well with what we have inside of the Bible. According to the writings of Josephus, the Talmud, Tacitus, Pliny the Younger, Sultanius, and some of the other scholars, this is the picture we have of Jesus when we bring it all together. Number one, Jesus was a Jewish teacher. Number two, many people believed that he performed healings and exorcisms. And that's mentioned even in the Talmud, and it's presenting Jesus not in the best light. The, the Christians who are, are Jewish Christians recognize that the Talmud did not present Jesus well, but it recognized that at least he performed miracles. They're going to argue that he's performing miracles from the dark side. Remember, some had come to Jesus and said, yeah, you're doing this in the name of Beelzebub, and he says, how can Satan cast out Satan? We remember that. And the Talmud is along the lines of echoing some of those sentiments. Number three, he was rejected by Jewish leaders. That seems to be clear. The Jews wanted to, to crucify him. And number four, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate in the reign of Tiberius. Number five, despite this shameful death, his followers who believed that he was still alive spread beyond Palestine so that there were multitudes of them in Rome by A.D. 64. And why is that significant? Because that's a, a high time period for Christian persecution. We know that Christians were in Rome being persecuted for the belief that they had experienced the resurrected Jesus, and that's in documents outside of the Bible. And number six, all kinds of people from the cities and countryside, men and women, slave and free, worshipped him as God by the beginning of the second century. We see that from the commentaries that we have on the Bible that we have preserved. And so it's interesting if you go outside of the Bible that you have at least six good reasons to believe that Jesus Christ existed. And these crazy theories that Jesus never existed at all seem to be something that a few people that are not even really scholars are going to try to embrace just to try to dismiss. But ultimately, in my conclusion, I bring up this passage. Mark 8, 27 through 29. Jesus and his disciples went on to the village around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, who do people say I am? And they replied, well, some say you're John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. But then he paused and he said, but what about you? Who do you say I am? And Peter answered, you are the Messiah. And so in closing, after three weeks of really sharing my heart with you and my passion for apologetics, specifically regarding the resurrection of Jesus, because I see it as the hinge pin of our Christian faith. Paul presents it as an either or. If Jesus resurrected from the dead, then we have hope, a hope for all eternity. If he did not, then we're the biggest fools for not only believing it, but also making out God to be a liar. I don't want to make God out to be a liar with my preaching and my teaching, and so therefore this is a very, very personal, important piece for me. And I thank you for, over the last few weeks, uh, listening to my reasons for believing for and my looking at the arguments against. And I simply leave you with these questions. Who do you say that Jesus is? Is Jesus still dead because miracles are impossible? Did he really die on a cross at all? Did Joseph of Arimathea fool us into this Christian resurrection story by duping us all? Did the Jews or the Romans steal the body and begin the Christian movement? Did the disciples steal the body and then start false rumors about the resurrection that would lead ultimately to their demise? Did the women go to the wrong tomb on Easter Sunday and all of this is for naught because Jesus' body is in some other tomb somewhere? Did Jesus rise but only as a spirit or a ghost and not in physical form, meaning that we really don't have any evidence or proof 
of our own resurrections or our own hope because there really would be no victory over death if Jesus only came back as a ghost. Was this mere hallucination that Jesus is still actually dead but a group of people hallucinated him? Was Jesus' body actually discovered already in some other tomb somewhere falsifying the belief that he was resurrected? Was Jesus given a common criminal burial and just thrown out into a field somewhere and his body eaten by wild dogs, which is why we never have discovered or never will his body? Was Jesus just a regular human rabbi with a twin brother? Or was Jesus a regular human rabbi over long, long periods of time, stories of mythology trickled down over time and now we're all gathering 2,000 years later, not to, not to celebrate a historical Jesus or a historical Messiah or the historical Son of God or a historical event, but rather just stories that were meaninglessly put down to us. Or did Jesus never exist at all? Are there any other alternatives? Honestly, none that I could find. I found some silly ones that aren't even worth mentioning, to be honest. Some student came to me and said, well, aliens stole his body. Okay, <laughs> if you want to go there. Another student told me, well, I believe that his body just vanished and it just poof into gas. Okay, well, that's fine. But these don't even make sense to me, so it's not even worth writing in my book. It would be embarrassing to say that somebody believes that aliens stole the body and even have a response to that. So some of these don't even warrant any response. <laughs> exactly. Or, or do we accept that he is our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, and the Messiah. And now we turn and close our service by worshiping at his feet.